Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're in April 1901 and we heard last week how Denise Reitz felt the blast of icy wind as he rode north with a German contingent led by Field Commandant Meyer. Denise had broken his own leg in a freak accident and was still hobbling about, his compound fracture causing some pain. General de la Rey ordered him to a small medical camp behind the lines near Hardebeespoort, which is just west of Pretoria. There he was recovering when the British launched their attack. A few days after I joined the hospital, we heard the sound of heavy gunfire around nine in the morning and realized that the expected attack had come. Rates saddled his horse and galloped to the ridge overlooking the British. There he joined his German unit in the firing line while the doctor loaded the wounded on a mule wagon and made his escape. There was not much they could do. There were around 12,000 English versus 600 Boers. We of the German contingent were merely spectators, but we were close enough to see the men at the threatened point run for their horses and take to flight. The casualties were light, although the British artillery were accurate enough and caused the Boers to fall back from ridge to ridge. By two in the afternoon, the English gave up the chase. We were able to come to a halt in a bush-covered hollow, where General de la Rey addressed us in his half-humorous, half-serious manner, and soon he had the men laughing and making light of their misfortunes. They rested their horses after the general's ironic speech, and then, under the cover of dark, rode away. An amazing sight greeted the men as they crested a rise that night, and Rates explains, There had been a magnificent double-tailed meteor in the sky of late, the two streamers of which looked like the V, and van Rensburg, the general's prophet, had been giving out that this stood for V for Freda, peace. But as they rode, a boyish voice from inside the commando and in the darkness called out, Meneer van Rensburg, that letter V up there does not mean Freda, it means Flach. Flach means retreat. Another example of the sense of humour of soldiers making the best of a bad situation. There was dry laughter in the ranks at this comment, and the prophet said nothing, although, as Rates points out, it did not diminish his output of prophecies, which continued right up to peace. So Rates and his German companions continued on through the night, looking at the comet heading westwards. Because you see, the meteor was actually a comet, and it was to become known as the Great Comet of 1901. It was Comet Viscara, which was discovered on the morning of April 12, 1901, as a naked eye object with a 10-degree tail in the shape of a V. It was almost exclusively visible in the Southern Hemisphere, and first described by an official in Uruguay, South America. The Royal Observatory in Cape Town, the Argentine National Observatory, and the Government Observatory in Perth, Australia, shared their scientific evaluation, which put the comet at 79 million miles from Earth. While the comet caused the Prophet van Rensburg some excitement, there was more excitement going on in the Cape. By late March, Commandant Kritzinger was back in the Midlands of the Cape with a small commander of 150 men. Remember, he'd been sent into that colony by General Christian de Vett, who tried to follow him. Judge Herzog also made it to the Cape. But they all were inexorably hunted down by the British, and eventually de Vett had to give up the whole idea, at least for the present. 
So by the end of March, Kritzinger was back in the Midlands. His commando was small and he was well supplied with horses and ammunition. The British columns which had been following Kritzinger turned and began pursuing two other commandos, led by Lotte and von Rienen, as far as the Orange River. This gave Kritzinger some breathing space, and his commando tracked slowly west to a place called Volva Valley, which is just south of the Free State. There Kritzinger learnt of the execution on the 2nd of March of Hendrik van Heerden at Sieverfontein in the Middleburg district. That enraged the commando, and in almost retribution at Spitzkorp on the 3rd of April, a black prisoner was shot dead out of hand. The British became aware of Kritzinger's return to the Cape, and in April 1901, an offensive was mounted once again, so that by the end of the first week, no fewer than seven columns under the overall command of General Jones were operating against Kritzinger. But in a brilliant manoeuvre, he galloped northwest from near Fish River Station on the 7th of April, Passing over Volvo Valley, he crossed the line into Renosteberg, trekking 45 kilometers in one day. Things were still too hot and Kritzinger eventually was forced back into the Free State once more. There, he was told about the continuing successes of two other small commandos led by Skierpers and Balan. Gideon Skierpers, however, was to pay for his indiscretion involving black British troops after he was captured. It all took place in late March after he had blown up the railway line near Jansenville in the present-day Eastern Cape near Port Elizabeth. After crossing the line and fending off fire from an armoured train, they found a stream close to the Sundays River and followed it south. At a place called Eitkomst, they came across a farmhouse and there took fire from a unit inside. After a heavy firefight, the Boers forced the 12 black soldiers inside to surrender. It was then that Skierpers shot two of the black soldiers out of hand, saying they should not have fired on his men as blacks, because he said it was a white man's war. He then burnt down the farm for good measure. There's a lot of misinformation about Gideon Skierpers. He was born in the St. Afrikaanse Republic, or the Transvaal, but the British believed he was actually from the Cape. The place of his birth is very important, because when he was eventually captured, he was accused of being a traitor, from the British colony. Skierpers then faced 15 charges in a court-martial, seven of murder, one attempted murder, one that he placed a prisoner in the line of enemy fire, one of maltreatment of prisoners of war, three of assault, two of malicious injury to property, and one of arson. He was found guilty on all counts except one of the murder charges and sentenced to death. On the 18th of January 1902, he was executed by firing squad while tied to a chair. He was reburied during that night in an unknown grave, and to this day his place of burial is unknown. But back to 1901. While Skierpers was busy in the south, another of Kritzinger's smaller units under command of Fouchier were being more effective around Moltino in the Cape. Fouchier's scouting system followed what would become the model for all modern soldiers and is regarded as a great commander. All his men were well-mounted and armed with captured Lee Metfords, and there were many local rebels in his ranks. By April, he was threatening the region around Maltino and Kambadu in the Karoo. At Newlands in Kambadu on the 6th of April, Milan led an attack on 90 men of the Lancashire Yeomanry, commanded by Captain Berthington. That entire force was captured with 90 horses, 18 mules, 4 wagons, 1 Maxim machine gun, and a huge supply of ammunition and food. So you see, the Boers were still stinging the English. 
At the same time, a small-scale spontaneous rebellion had started in the nearby districts of Calvinia, where around 100 men decided to move north and join the Boer War formally. That was taking a big chance, as I've explained. The British would have executed these men as traitors, not as enemy troops, had they been caught. But for now, we'll leave these rebels in their dangerous mission and return to the drives that Kitchener had started in earnest. He needed more troops, and they were arriving from across the empire. For example, the 2nd Regiment of the New South Wales Mounted Rifles, which had been established in Sydney, Australia, arrived in South Africa and Port Elizabeth in mid-April. The 2nd Mounted Rifles consisted of five squadrons, but unlike the 1st Mounted Rifles, it also had a machine gun section. The preference for recruits was trained men who were good shots and riders. They needed to be between the ages of 20 and 40, 5 foot 6 inches or taller, and have a chest measurement of 34 inches or larger. A more professional group of soldiers had now made their way to South Africa from Australia. As part of the 5th contingent sent by New South Wales to the war, and the regiment numbered 33 officers and 673 other ranks, with 700 horses. I've taken a look at the shipping records for this time, and there were a number of vessels heading to the Cape, or already arrived by March and April 1901. You see, Kitchener needed more horses and more men. Some of these men happened to be 50 Aborigines, who were expert trackers, and were sent to serve with various British forces. Lord Kitchener had personally requested their tracking skills, and the role they played in the war has been detailed in a book called The Black Trackers of Bloemfontein by David Huggins. The exact number of trackers who served is unknown, and there are few details about them, although there are brief snippets of information that can be found. Ominously for these Aborigines, Dale Kerwin of Griffith University believes they didn't return to Australia at the end of the Boer War. He claimed in 1902 they were not allowed back due to the white Australia policy. Another mystery from this war, and another misery. In the midst of all this warring and Antipodean soldiering, the Commonwealth of Australia formally came into existence in January 1901 as a result of the Federation of the Australian Colonies, and defence was made a responsibility of the new centralised federal government. This brought about the creation of the Department of Defence, and two months later, on the 1st of March 1901, the formation of the Australian Army. Eight Australian Commonwealth Horse Battalions of the newly created Australian Army were sent to South Africa, although some saw little fighting. But it was because of the need for an organised military and defence process, and directly linked to the Boer War, that this Australian Army was formed. That's similar to the Canadian story, which I outlined in a previous podcast. Some Australians later joined local South African irregular units instead of returning home after discharge. These soldiers were part of the British Army and were subject to British military discipline. Such units included the Bushveld Carboneers, which gained notoriety as the unit in which Harry Breaker Morant and Peter Hancock served in before their court-martial and execution for war crimes, which I've covered in episode 72. So all in all, just under 16,200 Australians served in South Africa, and perhaps another 10,000 enlisted as individuals in imperial units. Casualties included 251 killed in action, 267 died of disease, 43 missing in action, and 735 wounded. 
So in the southwest of South Africa, General Christian de Wet had broken up his commando into six based on the regions of the Free State. Our tactics of divining our commandos and thus keeping the English busy in every part of the Free State, or where they were too numerous for us, or refusing to allow them to give us battle, so enraged them that they could no longer spare the farmhouses in the north and northwestern districts. Lord Kitchener's plan to flush out the Boer guerrilla units by destroying their support bases, the farms, had now begun in earnest. But De Wet noted that in the south and southwest, there was not the same level of application by British columns. The work of destruction was not carried out with the same completeness as in the aforementioned districts, he writes. Their women were being driven off into concentration camps as the cold seeped across the country, and for the Boer commandos it would become a time of extreme shortage. We had no provisions except meat, bread and maize, says De Wet. They had now also completely run out of coffee and sugar. As usual, the felt provided some sustenance which De Wet describes. In the Borsov district, they used wild tree whose roots made what De Wet called an excellent substitute for coffee. But clothing had become hard to find. Remember how I described Rates and his clothes, which had been reduced to rags, eventually leading to him wearing a blanket and leather sandals. He was not alone. De Wet explains, We were reduced to mending our trousers and even our jackets with leather. The wounded and the elderly amongst the commander were responsible for tanning the leather. As with everything else, when an English column appeared, they were forced to leave their leather and flee. This began a process where the English realized that the Boers were short of clothing and would destroy the tanning tubs and slice up their leather. The bitterness that this evoked is curious but understandable. To obviate their problems with clothing, the Boers began a new system they called Eitschkuden, or stripping their prisoners. The more the English destroyed Boer leather hide production, the more English troops were stripped of their clothing. Things were becoming more and more personal. In the northern Transvaal, meanwhile, Plumer's column had arrived in Petersburg by mid-April and ransacked the town. The Boers, as I explained last week, were squeezed between Plumer's column and 11,000 men under the command of General Binden Blood, freshly arrived from India. He set out from Middleburg and pushed directly north, but Louis Bote and his men had seen the trap from afar and rushed eastwards towards Portuguese East Africa. The Boers had moved towards Bote's commando based in the Ermelo region near Swaziland. The only commando of any significance left was under General Fulun, who now seemed to hesitate. He appeared to move northwards, but there the Sekakuniland people awaited him, and their chiefs were fired up. They would have attacked the Boers, and Fulun knew, so he was trapped between Pluma, Blood, and Sekakuniland. He zigzagged through the bush, making no proper decision about escape, and his men began to lose faith rather quickly. There were many desertions as the commander appeared to lose his nerve. He was compelled to burn his wagons, which led to more men deserting, and the rest were on the point of mutiny by the 20th of April 1901. There, four of the British columns were within a few miles of Fulun's commander near Belfast in the eastern Transvaal when he made a sudden dash for freedom. His scouts had found a gap and ably guided by these men, the commando rode for three days westward, up steep bridle paths and clawing bush. His final push saw the men and their horses for 19 hours straight until they eventually crossed the Olifants River at a point where the banks were so steep that the British had left it unguarded, believing it was impossible to cross at that point. 
Fulun had lived to fight another day, but his inability to make a decision had left his men in two minds about how effective he was as a leader. We must leave Fulun at this point as he joins up with General Louis Botha and as the temperatures drop still further across South Africa. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, and for any comments, direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Daar onder in die mil is bij die